Chapter 10 of The U-Boat Hunters by James B. Connolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter 10 The Cargo Boats. I have spoken earlier of meeting cargo boats, tramp steamers we call them at home, while crossing the Atlantic. In peacetimes, a fellow would naturally expect to see them here or almost anywhere else on the wide ocean but to see them in these war days was to set a man wondering about them wondering because more than ninety per cent of u-boat sinkings are of ships of less than twelve knots speed which means that these rusty old junk heaps wheezing along at maybe nine or ten but more likely at seven or eight knots furnish most of the sinkings they surely must be having great old times getting by the u-boats and their captains and crews must surely have a viewpoint of their own at this naval base of which i have been writing you could look almost any day and see five ten or twenty of these cargo boats to moorings and ashore was a pub there were other pubs plenty of them but to this one particular pub came bunches of these cargo captains to forget things without wishing to offend any prohibition advocate i have to report that knocking around the world a man cannot help noticing that men who face peril regularly do sometimes take a drink to ease off things a barmaid answering to the name of phyllis presided over this pub a blonde square-built capable person who had always about three or four of these captains standing on their heads she was not without sentiment but never letting sentiment interfere with business Phyllis, my dear, a skipper would begin, and get about that far, when she, her right hand reaching for the bottle of scotch and her left for the soda, would be saying, The same, Captain? Thereby choking off a great rush of words, and forwarding the business for which she drew one pound ten a week. Before a creature of that kind, these cargo captains were bound to preen themselves. They bought at frequent intervals, not at all like the ways of another group, nut cargo captains of whom one of our american warrant officers said you buy and buy and buy and they drink and drink and drink it comes time for them to buy and when it does they submerge and don't come up for air these cargo skippers were always coming up for air they would hunt a man three stories up in his room wake him out of his sleep and haul him downstairs to have just one more between drinks after they got to know a man pretty well they would talk of their sea experiences and after the fashion of all true adventurers their talk was almost always of the humorous side of things there was a skipper there one morning who bid all hands especially phyllis good-bye he was off to alexandria he would not be back for three months more likely five or six months phyllis pinned a flower in his coat and off he went from the pub window they saw him board his ship and an hour later saw her steam out of the harbor and to sea that was at ten in the morning at five in the afternoon the lights were just being turned on those in the pub who happened to be looking out of the window thought they saw this captain's ghost coming up the waterside with his crew trailing behind him the crew looked as if they had dressed in a hurry and were scampering along to keep warm but our skipper was wearing all he wore when he left the pub he drew nearer it was no ghost it was himself even to the rose in his coat he hailed phyllis she was talking to another skipper the other skipper turned to see who was butting in and seeing who it was said to egypt and back in seven hours the quickest voyage ever i heard of 
which comment so depressed the voyager that he refused to say anything about what had happened except that five miles outside of the harbor he had been torpedoed and they had to take to the boats in a hurry the foregoing is by way of introducing the captain who commented on the quick voyage a few mornings later i was up at the admiralty house when he came into the waiting-room let himself carefully down into a mahogany chair dropped his new soft gray hat into his lap and looked around a solemn place ain't it would they ang a chap d'ye think if he was to ave a bit of a smoke for himself while waitin i said that i thought the fashion nowadays was to take a man out and stand him up against the wall and shoot him he was tall heavy built fresh colored with a way of seeming to reflect deeply before he replied to anything by and by he said oh ay and lit his cigarette but had not taken the second puff when the doorkeeper's feet sounded outside at which sound he pinched the cigarette hurriedly by the neck and looked around for somewhere to dump it there was no ashtray and the table being bare mahogany the floors all polished wood the fireplace with no fire in it so brassy and shiny that to put anything there would be treason he dropped the cigarette into his hat the doorkeeper smelled something but he wasn't one who looked on lowly things when he walked and so did not see the little spiral of smoke curling up from the hat my seafarer was in a great stew to sit there and watch him was to warm up to him there he was a man who regularly faced death by more ways than one at sea but now in deep fear that this shore-going flunky would catch him smoking a surreptitious cigarette he stared determinedly at every place except at his hat until the doorkeeper had passed on when he looked at his hat the cigarette had burned a hole in it he viewed the hat sadly no gainsay in it war is l ain't it i paid fourteen bob for that at three days back in cardiff i went out to help him buy a new hat hat stores were scarce but life does not end with hat stores there were fleets of little places where a man could sit down and talk about more important things than hats in the hotel smoke-room after lunch there was no sugar for our coffee his sea training began to show at once the thing you have to learn to do at sea is to go on your own nobody's doing much for a chap that he don't do for hisself is there from his coat pocket he drew an envelope which once held a letter from home in place of the letter now was sugar preparedness ere it is and sweeten our coffee from the envelope he spoke of his life at sea i can't say that i like it i can't say i don't like it but it was my life before the war and it has to be since you've seen my ship haven't you lying to moorings nothing great to look at is she but the managing director of our company he has the andling of maybe a hundred more like her let em have their grand passenger ships he says but give me my cargo boats that pays for their selves every two voyages the right idea he ad i'll say for him and for my part of it there is no everlastin polishin o brass and paintin no white work and no buying o gold-laced uniforms at your own cost and there's the bonus for me oh ay a bit of bonus ain't a bit of arm you know especially when you've a wife that's no eyesore to look at and little kitties growin up torpedoed oh ay it's not to be expected of a man to escape that these days my chum bob remember him 
that was seven hours to Alexandria and back, with a rose in his coat? His fourth time torpedoed, that was. I've been blowed up only three times myself. Nothing much of anything special. The last time, and the time before that, a matter of getting into boats, and by and by being picked up. No more than that. No. But the first time. Maybe it was a novelty, like then. However, I'd carried a load of coal to Naples, and getting twenty-two pounds a ton for coal that cost two pound ten in Cardiff maybe makes it a bit clearer what the managing director had in mind when he said, let em have their grand passenger ships, but give me my little cargo boats. From Naples, I go on to Piraeus in Greece, and we take a load on there, admiralty stuff, and not to be spoken of, and we put out for Ohm. She was a good old single crew, this one o' mine, twenty-five-year-old, not the worst, thought I'd seen better. Well, warmed up she could squeeze out eight knots, or maybe eight and a half. I hung close to the land along that Greek shore, for if anything should happen, there's no sense having too long a row to the beach in boats. Very good. We're rolling along one morning, when the radio man came in with a message which read, Put into nearest port, you boats. And, without ado, we puts into a little place down at the eel of Italy, and that night I had a hot barth and a lovely long sleep in my brass bed, which the missus had given me for Christmas the last time home. And a great pleasure it was, I say. Next morning we put to sea again, and next day after comes another radio, and it says, Put into nearest port, you boats, and we put into Malta. And that night again I had another hot barth and a fine sleep in my brass bed. We resume our voyage from Malta, and a two days later I gets another radio, more U-boats, and I puts into Algiers. Three times in one week then made with me having me hot barth and a fine sleep in me brass bed. Grand good luck, I say now, and said it then to the mate, adding to it, there's a signal station west of gibraltar wouldn't it be delightful passing that signal station to get the word to put back to jib and stop there for another night and i have another hot barth and a lovely sleep in my four-poster bed but the mate he only says he didn't have no brass bed aboard ship to sleep in and he saved his hot barths he did till he got home to enjoy him proper summertime it was and i likes to take my little siesta after lunch, just like the dons theirselves, you know, and I'm having me siesta next day after lunch when something woke me up. There's a shelf of books on the wall of my room, chart books and the like, and when all at once I see them piling down on top of me, I say to myself, something's happened, and so it add. The mate, he sticks his head in the door and says, we're torpedoed, sir. There goes my bonus, I says, and goes on deck. We carried a three-inch gun in a little house aft, and there was the mate firing at the U-boat, which was out of water and maybe two miles away. It was one of those out-of-date guns the Navy would have no more to do with, and so they passes it on to us. New good guns would probably be wasted on us, and maybe that's true. None of us aboard ever fired a shot from the gory weapon till this day. The mate fired two shots at the U-boat, but he don't hit anything. The U-boat fires two shots at us, and she hits something. One of them passes through the chart house, and the other tears a nice little hole in her forward. That'll do for that gun practice, I says. Aren't you going to have a go at em? 
says the mate. You can have all the go at em you please, I says, after we leave the ship. Besides, there's nineteen men and four Eurasians in this crew, and some of them will maybe like to see home again. I know I do. We get into the boats, myself taking along what was left of a second case of scotch, and good old pre-war scotch it was, not the gory infant's food they served these days, that a man asked to take a tumbler full of to know he's having a drink at all. I also took along three soffy cushions, and worked by the missus, with pink doves and cupids and the like, rare lookin' they was. A man's might's well be comfortable, I says. I add a cook. If comfort's the word, says the cook, I might's well take along the wife's canary. And he takes it along in a cage in one hand and a bag of clothes in the other. He's in the boat when he thinks to go back for a package of seed he'd left for the canary on the shelf in the galley. Hurry up with your bird seed, I says, and as I do, a shell comes along and explodes inside of her old frame somewheres, and the cook says maybe he'll be getting along without the seed, the canary not being what you'd call a heavy eater anyway. The maid add a camera, and when we're clear of the ship, he would stand up and set the camera on the shoulders of a Eurasian fireman and take shots at the ship between shells. In good time, one last shell hits her, and down she goes. The U-boat moves off, and we see no more of her. It's a fine day and a lovely pink sunset, and there's a beautiful mild Sirocco blowing off the African shore to make the hot night pleasant as we approach it in the boats. A man could hardly ask to be torpedoed under more pleasant conditions, I say, and we continue to row toward the shore in eye opes. It's maybe two in the morning when we see the side lights of a ship. She's bound east, a steamer, and we know she's a Britisher because we're the only chaps carried lights in war zones at that time. Carrying lights at night, of course, made us grand marks for the U-boats, but there was no help for it. Aboard a uh, trade regulations, that was, and no getting away from what the board of trade says. We had our choice of carrying lights and losing our ships, or not carrying lights and losing our jobs. So we lost our ships. After a year and a half of war, some bright chap in the board said that maybe it would be a good idea to change the regulation about carrying lights, and they did. And about time, we said. Some of the crew were for ailing the ship in the night. A.O.L., I says. D'ye think I want to be took into that rotten ole of a Port Said, or maybe Alexandria, and that end of the Mediterranean fair lousy with U-boats? Besides, we'll get home quicker this way, I says, and allows her to pass on. In the morning we run onto the beach, and hardly there when a crowd of Arabs come galloping down on horseback to us, We'll be killed now, says the mate, and talks under his breath of stubborn captains who wouldn't ail a friendly ship's light in the dark. But the only killing the Arabs do is two young goats for breakfast, and they make coffee that was coffee, and we had a lovely meal on the sand. And by and by they steered us along the shore to where was a French destroyer which takes us over to Gibraltar, and from Jib we passed on through Spain and France to Havre. Three weeks that took, and I never had such a three weeks in all my life. Eros, rangin' Eros, that's what we were. At Harve, the French authorities took the mate's pictures out of the camera, and they never did give him back. Except for that, it was a fine pleasure, that land cruise home. 
Lucky? Oh, aye, you may well say it. Three times in one week I add me odd barth and my lovely sleep in me barras bed. It's not to be looked for with ordinary luck, you know. One day the destroyer to which I was assigned put to sea. There were other destroyers, and we were to take a fleet of merchantmen from the naval base to such and such a latitude and longitude, and there turn them loose. My friendship was of the convoy. We made such and such a latitude and longitude, and there we turned them loose, signaling the position to them and waiting for acknowledgment. They acknowledged the signal. We then hoisted the three pennants which everywhere at sea means pleasant voyage. They answered with the three pennants which everyone spells thank you, and no sooner done than away they belted, each for himself, and let the U-boats get the hindmost. The hindmost here was the rusty old cargo boat of my friend. I could see her for miles after the others were hauled down, and long after I could see her, I could picture him walking his lonely bridge and his ship plugging away at her seven or maybe seven and a half knots across the lonely ocean, three times torpedoed and taking it all as part of his work. Some day they may get him and he not come back, and when they do, the world will hear little about him. Hero? He a hero? Why, a shore-going flunky had him bluffed for smoking a surreptitious cigarette in high quarters. Ero? Not him. Why, he don't even wear a uniform. So there they are, the wheezing old cargo boats and their officers and crew. British, French, Italian, American, but mostly British. No heroes, but the Lord help their people if they hadn't stayed on the job. End of chapter 10. Recording by William Tomko.